Well, good, good morning, Mountain View family. It's so good to be together. Grab a seat, everybody, grab a seat and grab your Bibles. I love it, I love it that it's always a little bit of a challenge to pull you back together. I trust that's because you're encouraging each other and loving one another. And uh, by the way, Jacob, thank you for reminding me about taxes this morning. I'm so grateful for that. That encouraged my heart. Um, it's so good. Well, good morning, Mountain View family. All right, some of you have had your coffee over there, yeah. So um, if I haven't met you before, my name's Clark. I'm one of the pastors here. I just have the privilege of getting in the Word with you this morning. I'm so grateful to dive into this text. Um, you're going to grab your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, and turn to page 837, and that is John chapter 6. John chapter 6, as we continue our gospel journey. Have you guys enjoyed this so far? Just looking at Jesus, seeing, like Paul says, the glory of God on the face of Christ. And that's what we get to do as we journey with him through Galilee and, and, and on to his death and resurrection um, for our life that we have in his name. Uh, life-changing truth here this morning for you. This is the longest chapter in John's gospel. All right, we can all pray and go home now. Um, 71 verses, and we're going to hit them all this morning, all at once. Um, not really. We'll be settled in here for about four Sundays. I did have a teenager come up to me and say, I did share all 71 verses during an FCA meeting once, though. So it has happened and has taken place. So, um, but we're settling in here for about four Sundays, and, and you guys, this is just, man, this is such an amazingly rich, uh, life-giving, faith-growing, Christ-satisfying chapter. There's so many truths in here for us to see and delight in, and, and most all of it, this, this whole chapter is really the bread of life chapter. It's the bread of life narrative where Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life. Um, it all kind of pours out of the first miracle we're going to look at today, which is the, the fourth miracle in the, 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 the signs that uh, John unfolds um, in this gospel. And he writes these signs, chapter 20, verse 31, so that you might believe, and by believing, you might have what? Life. Okay? So you have to say that, though, with a little bit more life in it. Okay? So when we get to 2031, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life. There we go. That's way better, right? Now, if church has been a part of your life at all, um, over the years, maybe especially as a child, um, you have been exposed to this story, the feeding of the 5,000, in a number of different ways. And if you were in Sunday school at all growing up, you have probably seen it in all of its glory and wonder in flannel graph cutouts. There it is. This is, uh, this is somebody, there's a Sunday school teacher over here from the 80s clapping, um, for sure. Because um, this is like children's PowerPoint from 1970 and 80. Um, there's a lot less than 5,000 there in case you didn't, didn't wonder. Imagine cutting all those out, right? And you've probably heard it from all different perspectives, different moralistic lessons that come from this, like focusing on the little boy in verse 9, and, and your Sunday school teacher might have told you, hey, it's good to share with people. It's good to share your stuff, and it's especially good if you share your lunch with Jesus, and you give Jesus your stuff, and you walk out of there going, okay, I want to be a good little boy. I'm going to share a lot more, and, um, at least if you were me. That's, that's how I responded, right? Um, I, and I hate to ruin any fond childhood memories or to criticize any of your Sunday school teachers, and I praise God if you learn from that, 
But that is not what the next part of John's gospel is all about. Instead, church family, this is about the creative, all-satisfying, all-worthy, life-giving power of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see in these miracles as he becomes our supplier and our sustainer, our, our giver of eternal life. And I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning, that you'll sense more of that joy and delight and true satisfaction in the one place where we can truly get it, that is in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom we have life. And the one truth that I I think John would have us take away, and you could say it in a lot of different ways, but here's how I want to say it this morning. I want you to see that Jesus is your Lord of the impossible. Jesus is your Lord of the impossible. In fact, write down in your notes or in your margin of your Bible or circle or whatever, say, Jesus is my Lord of the impossible. I want you to internalize this, make this personal this morning, that Jesus is your Lord. It's not some theoretical idea out there that Jesus is Lord, and I'm trying to figure that out. No, it's he's my Lord, Lord of my impossible, and I'm stepping into life with him and surrender to him. Um, Just imagine for a minute, if you could, the, the, the number of impossible situations in this room, from start to finish, there's probably nothing that's not covered in this room. All kinds of things, financial insecurity, instability, uh, pain and health concerns, diagnosis that right now you're carrying with you moment by moment, day by day. Addictions, depression, anxieties of all kinds, the unraveling of sin and hurt. Our, our ladies were encouraged yesterday just to, to process those kinds of things under the shadow of his wings. And you spent the day talking about how Jesus meets you in those painful situations. Um, many of you, painful events in, in your past that you... Boy, you have to just give it over to God day after day after day, fighting hard together for purity and holiness and walking more like Jesus. And there's people in your life right now you can think of that you're praying for and you're desperate to see them finally come to Christ. And it just feels what? Impossible. It feels impossible. And my hope is that when we dive in to the gospel of John and we see the glory of God in the face of Christ and we see Jesus doing things like feeding thousands from a little boy's lunch or walking on water, our hope is that our our faith would go so much deeper, that, that our hearts would see Jesus so much bigger and that we could collectively agree that he meets us in all of it and that he is so perfectly sufficient and perfectly capable. Amen? And I hope you'll gain a whole lot more of that this morning as we feast quite literally on the Lord Jesus, our bread of life. Now, I don't want to minimize any of that pain and suffering and difficulty in life. And and what we're talking about today is true for that. But this chapter takes us a whole lot further than that. It takes us way beyond just whatever immediate circumstances. And and in reality, a, a lifelong struggle with something is immediate in terms of eternity, And that's what this chapter is about, is about eternity. As impossible as each of the physical miracles we will see is, how much more does Jesus do to show us what the miracle actually represents? In the first case here, that he is the bread from God. 
the bread from heaven, the, the food, he says, that endures to eternal life. You eat this food, you will live forever. You will never hunger again. Same as the living water from chapter 4. Jesus is the bread of life. So not only is he Lord of a host of impossible situations, he is the Lord of the impossible. The most impossible thing for all of humanity, our desperate need for salvation from sin, to be put to death and raised again with Jesus that we might walk in the newness of life. He is Lord of the greatest impossibility. And when we understand that, when Jesus has done that for me, then he becomes my confidence and my hope and my life in every other thing, in every other situation. So I want to walk through this with you, the first uh, 22 verses or so, and, and I got three points and then just a, an exclamation point at the end on Jesus' power and his might and his glory and his worthiness of all glory and honor and power. First of all, the impossibility of the situation, verses 1 to 6, the impossibility of the situation. Um, a lot has gone on now. We're about two years into the ministry of Jesus. He's worked countless miracles, so a lot more than what we've seen in John's gospel. In fact, if you, you do a little like comparing of the gospels, harmonizing the gospels, between chapter 5 and 6 is Matthew 10 to 14. So four whole chapters, there's a lot of time that passes. He's in Jerusalem right before this, as it says, and then all of a sudden he's 70 miles north up at the Sea of Tiberias. This would be kind of like if I said to you, I went to Wheaton College and I graduated, then after that I met my wife. Well, there's a whole lot of time that went on in there. It's the same thing that John is doing. He's saying, after this, the next thing happens. And so now his fame is growing, like all the more. There's droves of people following him and want to meet this new and and see this new mysterious leader. And so here we go. We get into chapter 6, verse 1. Crowds are following. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, same sea, just renamed for a city um, around, the, around the lake, the, the sea there. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So some of them wanted to receive this. Some of them just wanted to see the show. They wanted to get in on the action, right? We've seen this already, and it's going to be all the more important as the, ch- the chapter develops all the way through, because thousands and thousands of people are following Jesus predominantly for the immediate things he can give them, not, not to surrender to him, to give their lives over to him, to follow him, but to, to get the stuff that he offers, the benefits that he gives, what he can do for them. And we know this is true because if you just glance over to verse 66 real quick, fast forward all the way to the end of the chapter, and you find that after all of the teaching and the miracles we'll talk about over the next four weeks, in verse 66, there are many of the followers who turn and no longer walk with Jesus because he calls them to a life of surrender, surrender to the bread of life. Now, this is what I love. I love this about Jesus. This happens over and over again. He knows this about them. He knows these crowds are here to get the goods. He knows that many of them, and he can look them in the eye and say, you're going to turn away from me and walk away in 65 verses or whatever it is, whatever the time frame was. And yet, what's he going to do? He's going to feed them. He's going to give them what they need in the moment to illustrate his ability to give them what they need eternally. That's what this whole chapter is about. That's what the bread is about. So look at verse 3, moving on. Jesus went up onto the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
Now, that's a scene that's very common. Like, Jesus sits down, his 12 gather around him, and you know something's going to happen. He's going to start teaching. He's going to start giving them faith, helping them build in their confidence in him. Now, the Passover of the Feast of Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said, he said this to test him, for he himself, that is Jesus, knew what he, Jesus, would do. I, I love these, these dialogues between Jesus and his disciples. We, we know that some big faith lesson is coming, and, and it's Philip's turn. Like, he's going to be the, the guy that Jesus has the conversation with. The rest of the disciples and all of us get to look in and learn the faith lesson that he has. Um, so, is Jesus asking this question for himself? Obviously not. As, as always, the question is for someone else. It's for Philip. It's to help Philip graciously see where his faith is. And we're going to see that in a little bit. We'll see a little bit the condition of his faith in just a minute. But this idea here of testing Philip's faith is, is to, to, to ask some questions and to, uh, to, to kind of reveal the nature and the character of something. So Jesus is graciously pulling out the condition of Philip's faith. And it's going to mark that of, of the disciples as well. And we see that it still needs growth. Amen? Anybody with Philip this morning still need growth? Okay. All of us still need growth. Now, uh, just want to set the stage before we press on a little bit further. Um, the, the large crowd, at verse 10, says about 5,000 men. And you, historically, usually scholars will just double that for women and children. Some have estimated, uh, I, don't, I don't know why we have to do this, make it bigger than 5,000, because 5,000 is enough, right? But we, they continue to make it bigger. And, and some have guessed that maybe as much as 20,000 men, women, and children would have been gathering to Jesus at this point. Um, so how many of you have been to Ball Arena? Okay, a bunch of you, uh, and Nugget fans here? Okay, Nugget fans here? Uh, a few of you, okay. Do you know the capacity of Ball Arena? How many people are there? For hockey, it's 18,000. Okay, for basketball, it's another 1,000. I guess it's a smaller court. But. So even if you take like half of that, or you whittle it down to the 5,000, just, just to get a picture of this whole situation gathered around Jesus and his disciples on the hillside there was simply massive. It was meant to be impossible so that Jesus' glory would be put on display. And so that Jesus could wonderfully illustrate his abundant provision for every need of humanity, the greatest need of humanity being their need for the bread of life that leads to eternity so that we will never hunger again. Salvation in him, our desperate need to see the bread that leads to life. It's interesting, the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the disciples came to Jesus, and they, they tell him, they kind of go, Lord, it's getting late. Um, why don't you send the people out into the villages, and they can buy their own food, and then we'll continue on. And, and Jesus says, they don't need to go away, Matthew chapter 14. You give them something to eat. And I, you know, I've, anytime you go through the Gospels, you need to like, we, each of us need to put our, ourselves in the shoes of the disciples and go like, that's me, that's how I am, that's what I would look like. Um, because they're not the fools in this situation. They're just the representatives of human hearts. And, and I know that would be me. Like, I, I would just rather get out of the situation. 
Like, Jesus, send them away, and, and we can deal with them later. I would rather God take me out, but God says, no, in a sense, you give them something to eat. You stay in the situation and learn faith through it. Learn how I'm going to be your supply. I'm going to be the bread on your table through it. I'm going to be the bread that leads to life at every moment in every situation. So very often, God will not let us out of the situation, but takes us through and shows us that he is Lord of the impossible. And, and you know, the reality is that Jesus calls me, you and me to something that is impossible without him every single time. And when we start to realize that, then we're getting it. Then we're understanding, Lord, if you don't show up, if you're not in charge, if I'm not surrendered to you, and I'm not walking in your way, then I'm in deep trouble. Better yet, I am satisfied and delighted to be there, to be under your rule and reign. So this is the lesson that Jesus is starting to unfold. He's reminding them over and over again, I'm the bread for your deepest hunger. And he takes this physical hunger of a droves of people, and he says, okay, the faith lesson is on. Secondly, those impossible situations will never be answered by empty human solutions. Look at verse 7. In, in verse 7, Philip answers, 200 denarii would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get a little. So you begin to see the short-sightedness and the faith condition of Philip, the faith that Jesus tested and brought out. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's, if you notice, there's always another one to chime in. There's always another disciple to join in the, the discussion, right? He says to him, well, there's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? It's impossible, Jesus. This is impossible. A denarii, a denarii say that a hundred times fast, denarii was about one day's wage. And so, so he listened, I mean, literally, Philip's like doing the math. He's like up there like, okay, eight months of money wouldn't buy enough bread for these people. And, and Andrew's situation, his statement is, is the same. It, it, it's almost as if they, they see the impossibility of it. And, and maybe if they start to recognize that, that that's where faith grows from, is from the impossible situation. Again, they're not the fools in the situation, are they? They are, they are the picture of every single human heart. 200 denarii, friends, will not do it. Even the most we could possibly calculate or imagine coming up with is not going to meet the need. I mean, are you with me? Aren't we just so prone, moment by moment, to, to try and figure out things from a human perspective? Where I'm gonna first, I'm gonna step into this life situation, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do the calculations, and I'm gonna strategize, and I'm gonna figure out how I can handle this, and then, then when I fall flat on my face, and it doesn't work, then I'm gonna go to Jesus and ask him for help. Well, why don't we do that first? You know, how many times has Jesus proven himself to you how many times in the first five chapters, in this first two years of ministry, did Jesus prove himself to his disciples? You kind of wonder, like, why, why was their answer not something like, okay, Lord, you just said to feed them. Um, what's your plan? You know, uh, certainly, Jesus, we, I think we can do this, but you're going to have to help us. You're going to have to step in and, and, and do something and, and, and help us out with this feeding the, the thousands. I mean, I mean, come on, Jesus, five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? 
All that we do have, all that we, we, we can bring to the situation, everything we can offer is nothing for the problem we face. Okay, now you're getting it, right? Exactly. Simply to the cross I cling. How much in my hands do I bring? Nothing. I bring nothing. Hasn't Jesus proven himself over and over Again, and we keep trying to go through life and address things with human solutions, ending with what? Every time, human, human results. And so we need the Lord Jesus to take hold of us, to overcome those moments all the way from, just as we're walking by faith, just blind short-sightedness until i like, Lord, I just, I missed it. Lord, I confess and I want to trust you. Um, all the way to just stubborn, hard-heartedness. And every one of us in this room is somewhere on that continuum this morning. And we need Jesus to take us somewhere much greater than that. And so finally, it's an impossible situation, cannot be answered by human solutions. Finally, we're desperate for the abundance of the Lord's supply. I love how Jesus just just constantly kind of walks over the top of everything, right? And he's just in charge at every moment. And he just simply says, I just can picture him going, okay, guys, have the people sit down. Just have them, have them sit down. He's not unsettled. He's not surprised. I mean, think, think, like you look back over the, the, the first two years, how many times Jesus did a miracle? How many times he rescued people? How many times he conquered a demon with the word of his mouth? How many times he did what he did in, in their midst and, their, and they witnessed it? I mean, you'd think that Jesus would just be going, okay, guys, come on. Do you not get it at this point? I've got a plan here. But no, he just says, have the people sit down. Almost like faith 101 is back in session. Guys, time to watch and learn. I'm Lord of the impossible. Now, there was much grass in the place, verse 10, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Um, one of the shortest announcements of a miracle in all the Bible. Just one verse, Jesus prayed over the bread, started passing out, everybody had enough. No explanation. In fact, right now, you're like me, and I know what you're doing. You're going like, what, what did that look like? You know, did, did like two loaves all of a sudden become like four, when you broke it, did like it become six pieces and then eight pieces and then ten? And you're trying to physically figure out in logic how that might have happened. And, and there's no explanation here. We, we, we don't have an explanation as to how Jesus did this, but, but you're, you know, you're sitting there and you're starving and you're in the crowd and you're looking up and there's Jesus from a distance and you go, okay, he's got, he's got a, a meal, he's got some loaves and fish. What is, it? is he just, he gonna eat? I don't understand that. I also heard, I think he took it from a boy. So that's kind of weird. Like, what's going on here? And, and, and then he just prays, and he starts to, start to pass it out. And, and you go, like, what could that have been like? Just astounding, like a wave of fish and loaves, of food, feeding the people through the thousands, eating and filling their mouths until each one of them had just enough to tide them over to get them back home. Is that what it says? Are you with me? No. It says 
All of them ate as much as they wanted. See, the power of Christ breaks all laws of logic. It blows away all human comprehension and all the impossibilities in every possible way and creates a feast for thousands from a little boy's lunch. And it says everyone ate as much as they wanted. Okay, I've had enough. Pass it on. I've had enough. If you're looking ahead, you already know the story becomes even more abundant in verse 12 when they had eaten their fill. So again, this is just John tumbling words again on one another. He filled it up. They've eaten as much, eaten as, much as they want. And after they had their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. So now it's just this, this, these baskets overflowing, right? That nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten um, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that it was 12 baskets, right? I, I think that, um, and most scholars would agree, they would say Jesus had a very, very particular faith lesson for each of the 12 disciples to show them how he's going to be their eternal supply and that also that he's going to be their supply for this astounding mission that's ahead. Like, they're going to walk with him for another year, and then he's going to be arrested and tried and crucified, and they're going to flee for their lives, and then he's going to rise again and ascend to heaven, and he's going to commission them to to birth the church. And here we are today, Mountain View Community Church, 2,000 years later, because Jesus fed his disciples, not the physical 12 baskets, but himself, the bread of life. The point is that Jesus is Lord of the impossible, who never really does just enough for us, does he? He answers our world dead in sin. Praise God this morning that he did that for you, right? And he lavishly supplies bread that leads to life. He answers your need and mine with far and away over abundance. Do you believe this morning that that's how God loves you through Christ. That, that the bread is, is overflowing. That his abundance is real and kind and good. Jesus is more ready, more willing, more able to build your faith this morning than, and forgive your sin this morning and mine than you could possibly imagine. Now what happens here as a result of this? Verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign, the miracle that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him their king, Jesus withdrew and went again to the mountain by himself. So the people eat their fill. They, they see this astounding uh, logic and natural law-defying thing that takes place. And they are convinced that this is the prophet Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy chapter 18. These are Jews that are gathered to Jesus predominantly. They, they know their history. They've been taught it from their childhood. They know that Moses delivered their ancestors in the wilderness from Egypt and that Moses spoke of this great prophet who would come someday. And he would be another deliverer. He would be another rescuer of God's people. And so they're saying this is it. 
This is the one. This is the second Moses, the long-awaited deliverer. And I think about myself in this situation. I bet I would have been caught up in the frenzy too. You know, like, make him king. Let's go. Here we go. This, I mean, look what he did with bread and fish. Imagine what he could do to rescue us from the Roman oppression we're under right now. And so they want to make him king, but Jesus will have none of it. Why? Because his plan is to die, to bring life. His, his plan is to become lesser and lower and to be crucified and spat upon and beat by his creation so that he might bring the bread that leads to eternal life. And so he goes away, we know from the other gospels, to spend time in prayer. These people just want to make Jesus into what they want to get what they need in this very moment. But instead, he is a victorious king who will, who will meet the infinite spiritual hunger of his people through the cross, through life that he gains for us by raising from the dead. A victorious kingdom from people born from every tribe, tongue, and nation through suffering and death and resurrection. He is the bread of life for eternal life. Are you trusting him this morning? You just sang of his worthiness. The scene in, where John is weeping in Revelation because there's no one that's worthy to come and open up the word, open up the scroll and reveal what's about to happen. And then he finds there's one who is worthy. That is Jesus. There is one who is whole who can come and open the scroll and bring life and eternity and judgment on those who reject him. Do you trust him this morning? Do you see him as bigger for your impossible situation? Is your faith growing deeper in him for the impossible situation, the life that he's given you in his glorious and awesome name? We know from Matthew and Mark that Jesus sends the people away. And, and he's going to get away alone to pray. And then curiously, in Mark chapter 6, it says that he made his disciples, he compelled his disciples to get back in the boats and cross again to the other side. Some have suggested to, to get them out of the nationalistic rally and the frenzy that was going on. I think that makes sense. But maybe more than likely, I also wonder if Jesus has more faith lessons in store for them that involve a boat. I mean, think about how many times you get Jesus around fishing nets and water and boats. Like, it's on. It's time to learn faith. It's time to learn trust in him. And so now we come to, we're just going to finish off this morning with this fifth sign now in John's gospel, the fifth sign, the fifth big exhibit to submit into evidence that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have, some of you are with me, good job. So what has he done so far? Turned the water into wine in chapter 2. That's the first one. Healed the official's son 20 miles away from the word of his power. He healed the official's son. Third sign in chapter 5, or chapter 4, chapter 5, sorry. He healed the layman on the Sabbath and took on the religious leaders as they criticized him for healing on the Sabbath. Fed, five, fed thousands of people from five loaves and two fish right here in chapter 16. You kind of go, okay, what are you going to do next, Jesus? Walk on water? Now that you mention it, actually, yes, I am. 
See, this is just Jesus' faith building lessons, stacking one upon the other, right after the next as he teaches them. When evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, I'm thinking if I'm one of the disciples at this point, I'm looking around, I'm going, all right, what is about to happen? Because they've had enough times where they've been in a situation like this, where it's like, okay, Jesus is not here, but I feel like something's going to happen. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blown. Um, We know the disciples from Mark chapter 4 were in the same situation prior to all the events we've looked at. They came across the sea and they got into a storm there as well. And so here they go, verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were so encouraged and delighted to see him face to face. No, it says they were frightened. Two years with Jesus, miracle after miracle after miracle. And they're freaking out when he walks up to the boat on the water. But he said to them, some of the most beautiful words in all the Bible, these are the words Jesus says to you and to me. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then the understatement of the century, they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What astounding logic and natural law-defying power. One of Jesus' most well-known acts of divine power, walking on water, and not just smooth water, stormy water. Like, I don't, I don't know why I need to make that distinction, because as if, like, you and me could walk on the smooth water, but the stormy water makes it extra hard. I don't know. But it makes it more special somehow, right? Then equally amazing, when Jesus gets into the boat, immediately it's at the shore. Again, you're going, how does this happen physically? Was it like a fast forward? What, what happened? Then we also know that when Jesus got into the boat this time, something else also happened. You know what it was? The wind stopped. The wind stopped. And like I said, this is the second time this has happened where Jesus exercised his glorious creative power to control the sea and the wind. The last time was in chapter four. Jesus was in the boat already, right? He's in the hull of the boat asleep and the disciples are freaking out because of the the storm and they get him up there and he looks out at the sea and he says, peace, be still. It's two words, actually two words in Greek, three in English. Peace, be still. And I kind of, I, I, I love Jesus here because it's like, it's almost like he was thinking, okay, the first time wasn't enough. I was in the boat, so I'm going to send them ahead, and then I'm going to create this storm, and then this time I'm going to walk up to the boat. And maybe that will convince them of my power, that I am God, the Lord of the impossible. But as much as, as glorious and as wonderful and awesome as all this is, it's, it's not the point. The point is that nestled in the middle of all of these astounding physical miracles, we see again what this event is really all about. 
It's Jesus showing himself over and over again to be Lord of the impossible. It's about Jesus' power to overcome the doubts and the unbelief and the the fear in the hearts of men and women. Are you glad that he did that for you this morning? That he stepped in and overcame your fear and your doubt. It says... Jesus said to them, it is I, which is the same as Jesus walking up to the boat and saying, I am. Do not be afraid. The same thing that Jesus said in the presence of the religious legalists that made them hate him because he was making himself out to be, I am God on the earth. And Jesus walks on the water. Of course he can walk on the water. He spoke it into existence. And he walks up. I am. Do not be afraid. When Jesus steps into the boat here, friends, it's not a picture of the disciples choosing to add Jesus into their perilous situation. Like Jesus, if you could get in my boat, and when the storm comes and things are tough, you could maybe help me out a little bit. No, Jesus is in charge of this entire situation, physically, spiritually, uh, chronologically. He's the one who put him in the boat in the first place. And, And he takes over the whole situation. When he comes in and the wind stops, he's in complete control. And what a fantastic picture this morning of how Jesus infiltrates our lives and changes everything about it. You know, the boat at sea is a lot like life without Jesus. I don't want to over-spiritualize that or anything, but it it, it really is. Like being tossed and turned and this way and that. And until Jesus takes over the entire situation, it's topsy-turvy. It's it's us trying to, to figure things out on our own. It's us trying to add Jesus in to our equation we've already figured out that we think is good for us. And then he steps in and he overcomes unbelief and fear deep in our hearts to rescue us from sin and all those self and human focused things and and, and all of those counterfeit foods we try to feed ourselves with. And he is the bread of life that feeds my hunger. And he tells us here later, next week we'll get into it, that you will never hunger again. These two scenes are all about believing that you might have life in his name. It's it's about trusting and surrender and being fed and filled up by Jesus and abundantly and eternally satisfied in him, pleasures at his right hand forevermore. And and that's where these 71 verses are going. That's where we're going to jump in next week. You know, the people also, these thousands, they get into boats also. And they cross over and they want to find Jesus again. And, and he gathers them up again and he says, hey, I want to tell you something. Remember that bread you ate in, in the wilderness over there on the other side of the sea? Remember that, that miracle that you saw, that amazing sign that you saw? He says, that was but a whisper of who I am. I am the bread that leads to eternal life. And the message is this morning, don't seek him for the stuff you think he might give you. Seek him to get him. 
Jesus, we want you, every part of you, your rule and reign, your glory and your wonder, your majesty and your goodness, ruling and reigning over our lives. We want to surrender with all of our hearts to you, Jesus, this morning. I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that if there are, are those in this room that are, are wavering, or maybe they came to check out, oh, who's this Jesus, or what's this religion thing, and, and, and right now they're wavering on, on belief and trust, would you just step into the boat, Jesus? Would you just overcome unbelief and give faith and draw people to yourself? And for those of us you have by grace called to yourself, you've given us life in your name. Oh, Jesus, Lord Jesus, would you please help us to see how much more satisfying you are. Give us clear vision of you as our treasure and our worth and our joy and our delight in this life. And may we seek no other satisfaction in this life but in you. Help us, Lord Jesus. We know on our own, we're left to human devices. We're left to our own calculations, our own equations, our own strategies, our own ways of thinking, and we need you to break through constantly, moment by moment. Spirit of God, fill us full. Give us clear vision for this week ahead to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to remember the bread that leads to eternal life wherein we eat and we never hunger again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.